Good morning, Mr. Hitchens. Two quick questions, then my point. Uh, can you give me your opinion of the De Leon-inspired Socialist Labor Party? Number two, you recall earlier in the year the SEC investigated the NASDAQ market makers for corruption. I was hoping you or your friend over at CounterPoint, Alexander Comer, could look into the market makers' equivalent on the New York Stock Exchange, the specialists. I've heard they are deeply corrupt and have massive conflicts of interest. Now, there is a wonderful article in the newest edition of the Progressive Magazine by Elaine Rapping called Burrowing Within that addresses the cult of individualism. I spoke with you once and suggested that far more of a threat than the religious right is the Ayn Rand-inspired libertarian right. What makes them so insidious is that under the guise of self-help and therapy, they spread their deeply ideological pro-corporate message consisting chiefly of the lie that life is what you make it, when anyone who's ever had a Walmart or McDonald's come to town or worked inside these fascist multinationals knows the opposite is true, that life under capitalism is what corporations make it. And Mr. Fum, uh, I would have to say that the government of China is about as communist as Pat Robertson is a Christian. Thank you. It's a lot out there. Go ahead and react. That's a, that's a, that's a very high standard of call for this time of the morning. I mean, not, uh, but it's, I think it's the, the opening bit is a little arcane for some people. Daniel DeLeon was a great American socialist, rather dogmatic, rather schematic, thought by some, um, who ran for president um, on the socialist labor ticket um, and founded a party which still bears the, that name, which still produces a, a socialist weekly called, I believe, The People. Um, James Connolly, the great Irish uh, Republican socialist revolutionary who was murdered by the British after the Easter Rising, got his early training in Daniel de Leon's party. Um, but uh, let me see. On the NASDAQ, I'll have to pass. I'm sorry, I just don't know enough about the SEC and NASDAQ, and I, and I missed that story. As for what you ask about Ayn Rand and her influence on the American right, I think it's, I think it's extremely interesting. I, 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 there is a strain. Of, I'm sure a lot of people watching this have read either Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead and perhaps imbibed some of the, the Randian doctrine, which is um, best summarized, I think, in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. I've always thought it quaint and, and rather touching that there is in America a movement that thinks that people are not yet selfish enough. And um, I've met some of its supporters. They call themselves objectivists. And I've debated with them, but I've never got to the bottom of that problem. They think that really America is a society already rotten with too much socialism and compassion. And it's just so refreshing to meet people who manage to get through their day actually believing that. Ah, <laughs> uh, so that was a 1996 clip uh, from the late, in some ways great, in some ways extremely not great, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, but uh, that was that was kind of Hitchens at his best, um, you know, responding to a bunch of random things that he got in a C-SPAN call, uh, including Daniel DeLay. And I love the fact that he knew who Daniel DeLay was and, 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 and gave this like couple sentences about the history of the Socialist Labor Party, which is a like hyper obscure sect in the history of American socialism. Uh, actually do have some um, relevant family history that I will share sometime on the show, but uh, not right now. So uh, instead, I would prefer to talk, uh, joined here by our uh, super producer, Jake, uh, and our graphic designer, Andy, about a book that I wrote that I don't think I have talked about on the show until now. 
and we can actually announce a publication date and everything. So the book is called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. You can see the gorgeous cover there. Uh, the central part of it, that image of, uh, of Hitch, uh, was drawn by Andy. Uh, I think it's some of his best work uh, and uh, very generous blurbs there from Anna Kasparian, from the Young Turks, Bhaskar Sankara from Jacobin, Ed Buckner, who, uh, who actually knew Hitchens a little bit when, when Ed was the uh, head of the American Atheists uh, during, you know, during Hitch's new atheist phase. And um, I wrote this for, for a couple of different reasons. I should say that it comes out on New Year's Eve, so um, two months and change uh, from, uh, from now on New Year's Eve. So uh, you can, you know, if you, if you pre-order it so it arrives then, uh, you know, you can take a nice quick look at your copy, you know, before going out to do some drunken New Year's Eve rivalry, which is definitely what Christopher Hitchens would have wanted you to do, uh, you know, is, is, to, uh, is to go out and drink uh, rather than uh, sitting home reading the book. But then in the morning when you're hungover, you know, you, you want something to distract yourself with, uh, you could actually uh, read the book. Now, um, I know that no matter what I say, most people are going to buy it on Amazon because that is where most people buy books. And I know the Amazon link is supposed to be up by Thursday. Um, but where I'd actually prefer you to buy it, if, um, you know, for that section of the audience that, that will actually heed this, uh, is from Red Emma's, which is a worker-owned bookstore uh, in Baltimore. But, you know, you can buy books from them anywhere, and they anywhere in the United States at least, and they'll send them to you. Um, if there is a Red Emma's equivalent in Canada or the UK or Australia or New Zealand, let me know, and I will plug it for, uh, for viewers and readers uh, in those places. Uh, thank you, Joe. You're one of the best people in the world. He says uh, he's already, uh, already pre-ordered it. So that is redemmas.org. So you can support a worker cooperative. Um, which I, I think is a really useful thing to do, not because I think we can like ethical consumer, uh, consumerism ourselves to, uh, to a better world. Unfortunately, I don't think that's realistic, but uh, because I think it's really good to have a bunch of examples of thriving workers co-ops out there that we can point to as proof of concept that uh, we don't actually need a society that's divided between workers and bosses to have a functioning economy. I think that is a really useful thing to show. 1996, Christopher Hitchens would have agreed, uh, you know, later versions of Hitchens. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, 1996, Hitchens definitely would have been on board with that. Um, you know, 2001, he wrote a book called Letters to a Young Contrarian, uh, where he, he made it clear that over the course of the 90s, he'd, he'd kind of given up you know, by the end of the 90s, he kind of given up on the idea that socialism was ever going to happen. It seemed increasingly anachronistic to, you know, kind of hold out hope in that. Uh, and I think every, you know, one of the big arguments I make in the book is that everything else that kind of went wrong with his politics sort of stemmed from that loss of faith and there being some kind of socialist alternative to change the world for the better in that way, rather than in some of the ways that he sort of turned to once he, once he kind of gave up hope on that. In, uh, in that last uh, decade. Um, in particular, of course, um, uh, you know, believing that democratic revolution, you know, could, could be spread to the Middle East by a method that, you know, 
I think we've seen the disgusting results of that, you know, for uh, for the last 20 years. Uh, and that just kind of came, you know, came to end in Afghanistan uh, very recently. Um, but uh, wanted to do a couple different things in the book. One is to kind of reintroduce, or not even reintroduce, introduce uh, young socialists who, you know, came of age at a time where if they remembered the guy at all, it was from like the new atheism YouTube period, um, you know, introduced them to this body of work that he produced between 1971, uh, when the very first book with his name on the cover came out. It was a collection of essays by Marx and Engels on the Paris Commune with an introduction by him to 2001, uh, you know, Letters to a Young Contrarian, which, like I said, is where he, where he, he gave up, you know, uh, the, uh, the socialist project ever, you know, coming to pass. Um, so one is I want to introduce young readers to that body of work. I think that there's a lot of really good stuff there that, you know, that people on the contemporary left could benefit from. Um, and another is that I wanted to explore uh, what went wrong, right? Why is it, right? If we, if we don't just settle with the emotionally satisfying explanation that everybody who disagrees with us is a grifter, uh, you know, then, uh, then what is the reason that, you know, he had this bad political turn in the last years of his life? But also, Hitchens spent a lot of his life, you know, on philosophical issues, you know, arguing with people about God and, you know, morality and stuff like that. But as a big old philosophy nerd, I am interested in all of that. And, uh, and I think getting to write about him uh, combined all of those things for, you know, for me. So that, that again, hope you enjoy it. New Year's Eve, pre-order at redemmas.org. Uh, you can also get a little preview of what I say in it. Uh, I was interviewed by Current Affairs Magazine. Uh, so that's the that's the title of the interview. It was Christopher Hitchens, uh, still worth reading, that you could read over at Current Affairs. All right, um, let's switch gears here, guys. Uh, are you? Um, let's uh, let's start with uh, with with Jake. Uh, are you? Uh, how much do you know about Lynn Wood? <laughs> Very little. I keep failing these uh, these pop quizzes of yours. That's, which, that's, might, which might be healthy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's extremely healthy. Uh, I think that the I think that the emotionally healthy amount to know about Lynn Wood is nothing. Uh, that you know that you're probably living a better life if you say who's so, that. So, so why are you doing this to me then? <laughs> I don't know, malice. Uh, so uh, Lynn Wood. Uh, actually, uh, Andy, I'm sorry. I, sh I should give you a chance to play here. Yeah, he's a Georgia lawyer who who's been like arguing that the. Uh, uh, that the election was defrauded and Joe Biden stole it. <laughs> I live a sad life. Yeah. So uh, Linwood is a uh, is a right wing lawyer uh, who you know big in the uh, Trump really won the election. Uh, you know we sh we should sue people and do audits and all the other desperate things they tried. You know to uh, to very ineffectually overturn it. I mean the whole like it was like a three month drama of the equivalent of like the big tall guy holding up his hand like this while the short guy waves around his arms and you know nothing happens uh that, you know all of the courts uh like a series of republican and in some cases trump appointed judges threw all this shit out of court like in this super cursory way like they did everything short of writing lol fuck no and cran you know, on, uh, on the uh, the filings they've been given. Uh, also, of course, Lynn Wood um, is um, 
a uh, you know was actually represented uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, you know, much less funny, uh, the right wing vigilante, uh, you know, from 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 last summer. Um, and among other people, he's actually has represented. This is a really fun part of this story is this person. Do we have the uh, the clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene blowing up a car? Nancy Pelosi is sneaking the Green New Deal into the $3.5 trillion budget. And in 2022, I'm going to blow away the Democrat socialist agenda. That is a sitting member of Congress. Uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast later, she that was a real ad put out by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene in which she, uh, she, 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 uses, she blows up a car that's labeled socialism. So she's got like a sniper rifle that's like right out of some like, you know, weird Stallone movie. Um, and, and like, like you see the thing kick and like knocks her back a foot and she's like laying on the ground shooting the thing too. So yeah. like, she ain't ready for this. No. Um, I actually, uh, I actually remember, uh, with some nostalgia when like the 2010 Tea Party candidates all seemed crazy as shit, but, uh, the, the, the bar has been raised since then. All right. Now that everybody knows who these two people are. I want to put a pin in that. We'll come back to Linwood or Marjorie Taylor Greene in a minute. But um, first, I want to talk about right-wingers who see communism and communists, Bolsheviks, Marxists, um, everywhere. So a classic example, I say classic, I mean like 2018, you know, was, was the height of this. Um, you know, going into 2000, you know, 2018, 2019, but, you know, relative to how short everybody's attention span is now that Twitter's, you know, decimated all of our executive function, uh, you know, forever ago, uh, was Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson was very fond. He is very fond. It's not like he stopped, right? You know, he's still, uh, he's somebody who, um, a lot of uh, people who pay attention to certain kind of online discourse have forgotten about, but he still sells like 20 trillion books a minute. You know, it's, uh, you know, he hasn't gone anywhere. You know, he still has all the opinions that he's always had. Uh, but Jordan Peterson has and continues to uh, have the view that everybody he doesn't like, basically green haired college kids, you know, who, who want to yell at him about pronouns uh, are postmodernists. And they're also Marxists. So there's a classic explanation of what's wrong with this from 2018. Uh, actual non-ironic friend of the show, Natalie Wynn, uh, put uh, put out a, I think this is actually one of my all-time favorites of her videos, and we're just going to watch a couple minutes of a clip uh, where she explains why this doesn't really make sense if you know anything about um Marxism, 
or if you know anything about postmodernism, or really even if you know anything about green-haired college kids, you know, who are upset about pronouns. On one hand, we have Marxism, a fundamentally modernist worldview that theorizes the human condition in economic terms. On the other hand, we have postmodernism, a skeptical worldview that denies our capacity to know any universal truths about anything. On the face of it, it would seem these two ideas are not compatible. And there is an extensive history of dispute between them, with, for instance, the Marxist Sartre calling Foucault the last barricade the bourgeoisie can erect against Marx. And of course, as we all know, when Foucault died, Capitalism did and forever. So where does Peterson get off talking about postmodern neo-Marxism? Well, it's true that a lot of postmodernists were in some way influenced by Marxism, so the phrase could just refer to that continuity. But that's not what Peterson means. It's clear from the way he uses the term that the concept is even more jumbled and nonsensical than it initially appears. Peterson uses the term postmodern neo-Marxism to include not only postmodern intellectuals and Marxist intellectuals, but also liberal politicians, academic administrators, and corporate HR departments that care about diversity, and so-called identity politics activists, including feminists, LGBT, and civil rights activists. Basically, it's the entirety of the modern left. Now, I've already mentioned how Marxism and postmodernism are fundamentally at odds, since Marxism is a big story about a struggle between two clear and distinct groups, and postmodernism is skepticism about big stories like this, and about the stability of binaries like bourgeoisie and proletariat. But that's not the only tension in Peterson's clusterfuck idea of postmodern neo-Marxism. Anyone with any experience in leftist circles knows that Marxists and identity politics activists are constantly at each other's throats, because the Marxists accuse the activists of being bourgeois dogs who want more female CEOs of color and more disabled transgender drone pilots, while the activists accuse the Marxists of being a boys club of brochalists, no more woke on gender and race issues than the average Jordan Peterson fan. Most often these accusations are correct, because everyone is problematic and I disown them all. Uh, classic video, best part. Um, the uh, even if the both sides is the end makes me grumble, even in the context of a joke. But uh, in any case, uh, yeah, no, that's a really good video. That's a really good part of the video. Uh, so that's Jordan Peterson. This is you know 2018, 2019. Now, of course, you know it's 2021. Since then, the you know insane red baiting scene of, of communists under under every um every bed sheet you know and in, in every uh you know in in every cupboard has gotten uh much more advanced now we have somebody named james Lindsay, uh you know better known in some circles by his twitter handle at conceptual james um and at conceptual james is a very conceptual man uh, we are, uh, we're actually going to do an episode, I think, about him at the end of November. I have to have some guests, you know, being lined up for that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sorry. You know, the sadism is not going to end. Uh, so, uh, at Conceptual James has updated it. It's not Marxism equals postmodernism equals blue-haired college kids. Now, it's uh, Marxism equals critical race theory equals the CDC equals blue-haired college kids. And if you look at basically any of his tweets, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, make communists and fascist marginalized groups again, you know, communism being obviously, as we know, a very mainstream part of American society. Not everyone recognizes that the American communists were trying to install neo-communism, public-private 
partnership. That's neo-communism. It's public-private partnerships because they're public in it. Uh, stakeholder capitalism. <laughs> stakeholder capitalism is communism. Or communists, but very many people can now see something is badly off and coming from those people everywhere. They hold power. Lol, Bojo is being more communist than most of labor. Uh, Boris Johnson, who's talking about, uh, and everyone is like, lol, he's a Tory. Yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we just have a series of, 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 of tweets uh, here. I'm not going to read off all of them. It is just a constant parade of this kind of thing from at Conceptual James. But... I did say it's 2021, and I, I guess I should say more specifically that it's October 2021. Like, July 2021, maybe, at Conceptual James represented the state of art, the state of art, state of the art for, uh, for red-baiting lunacy. But a lot of advances have been made in the last, you know, few months. Uh, it's, it's like the... You know, it's like Operation Warp Speed for the vaccines, you know, like things that used to take years or decades, you know, could, could be done in months now. And we have a really impressive, really advanced form of red baiting uh, that is available on the market right now. In my opinion, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a communist. If Marjorie Taylor Greene running around saying impeach Biden, that says that Biden won. He didn't. And you would never impeach him with a communist Congress. It's a waste of time. It's all show. A traitor will come at you as a patriot. Be careful. So that was Lynn Wood saying that he sees right through Marjorie Taylor Greene pointing the sniper rifle and blowing up the car labeled socialism. Uh, he can tell that, in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a revolutionary communist. I think she was blowing up the car from the left. And that socialism isn't <laughs> isn't far enough, and she's a full on uh, yeah, commie, yeah. right? She hates social democrats. There we go. There we go. I like it. You know, she's um, uh, yeah, she's very upset uh, that you know mainstream American socialists, you know, contest Democratic Party primaries, and uh, you know they 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 don't uphold you know the DPRK and you know and and, and other sorts of ideological deviations. So yeah, that could be it. Um, so <laughs> we went from um, academic theories held by people who actually hated Marxism and uh, talked about it all the time and were hated by Marxists at the you know at the time in France, our communism, to blue-haired college kids or communism, to public-private partnerships or communism. And now we've worked our way all the way up to um, if you say that you want to impeach Biden, that itself shows that you're secretly pushing the communist agenda because it implies that Biden won the election and is thus president and can thus be impeached. Uh, all right. Uh, before we bring on Megan, I want to go back down to the actual world and talk about uh, a development uh, that has been happening that actually is a, a ray of hope uh, for egalitarian politics in the United States. Uh, and 
That, of course, is Striketober, the uh, wave of strikes that has been going on lately. Uh, and to update us about that, uh, our very own producer, Jake Appet, uh, who is actually uh, in his, you know, main job, I guess it's also important, a, uh, a union organizer uh, and is, uh, is very on top of stuff like this. So take it away, Jake. Awesome. Well, I, I did just organize a union of about 20 people, so I'm doing my part. But uh, Striketober involves many, many thousands of, of workers. I saw, Ben, that uh, it's the uh, main source of hope for you that you tweeted recently, right? So we're going to try to keep that optimism going. Uh, speaking of optimism, this definitely brought a smile to my face. Here's how important IATSE is. Without IATSE, I don't have hair. They just, IATSE paints the hair on. There is no hair without our workforce. Completely bald. Completely bald. It's bizarre. And naked. And, and also, here's our, yep, and also we're naked without that man right there, Ryan Wardrobe. <laughs> Abby Roll, Thea Samuels. Who cares? So uh, I was already a, a big fan of the show. I remember there's an early season one episode, I think, where Mac ends up on exactly in the middle of the fence, quite literally, with eggs being, uh, you know, thrown uh, from either side. I think over the abortion debate. So it's nice to see him taking the right side. Um, so let's do a quick uh, update on on Striketober. Um, I'm relying a lot um, on the reporting of my friend and colleague, uh, Jonah Furman, who I actually know from college, who's been doing some great labor reporting. He has a piece uh, con in conjunction with The Intercept uh, and Labor Notes. Uh, the John Deere strike shows the tight labor market is ready to pop. And it's a great uh, piece that I'd, I'd recommend uh, checking out. Um, I think what's... Uh, you know, to highlight um, about, you know, from Striketober. Um, so, you know, uh, right now we see uh, a mini strike wave, right, um, that is part and brought by the fact that we're on the tail end of a calamity, right, and that there was, uh, you know, major strikes that happened, major strike waves that happened uh, at the end of World War One, World War Two. Uh, if you were going to, you know, to compare those strike waves, that would be like the meme of like the, you know, the, the dog, uh, the strong dog flexing, right? And today's strike wave would be the cute dog. But, you know, these days, I think we should be uh, take inspiration where we can get it uh, with union density as, 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 low it is, as low as it is. And we don't want to spoil Ben's mood. Um, so, yeah, so there's been, you know, there's a huge pressure valve, right? That's kind of popping off. Uh, and uh, let's see, right now, um, 10... So most recent developments, 10,000 John Deere factory workers, part of the UAW union, uh, walked off the job first time in 35 years. And who are they joining? Currently on strike. 2,000 hospital workers striking Buffalo, um, New York. 1,400 production workers for, Kellogg, for Kellogg's in four states. 450 steel workers in Hunting, West Virginia. One day walk of 2,000 telecommunications workers in California, all since October 1st. 1,000 coal miners, 700 nurses, 400 whiskey makers in Kentucky, 200 bus drivers in Reno uh, were already on strike, um, in addition to recently settled strikes by 2,000 carpenters in Washington, 600 Frito-Lay workers in Kansas, and 1,000 Nabisco factory workers at five plants uh, across the country. Um, so that's kind of the rundown. Um, so in terms of things to, to look for, which are interesting dynamics here, 
Uh, Jonah actually, um, he got a, a anonymous source to provide him um, with, you can see here, uh, this Wall Street analyst report to investors is interesting, uh, is really worth quoting in full. Um, the owner class has its eye on what's going on inside of the UAW. Um, so what the anonymous source uh, reported to the shareholders was our time with the dear UAW union rank and file across Iowa last week provided us perspective on how deep rooted the distrust is between the rank and file union members and its UAW national leadership, which complicates the negotiations with Deer and the deep rooted anger these members have for what they perceive to be 25 years of granted concessions to Deer, such that with Deer's profits currently being so strong, they see it as time Deer workers share more in that success, including unwinds, unwinding some of the most unpopular concessions of the prior contracts. Uh, Sticking with the theme of you know rank and file versus the members uh, versus the you know uh, contract negotiation that's going on at a higher level, uh, IATSE, which was uh, posed to strike, um, and it would be so sixty thousand film and television workers uh, were prepared to strike, uh, and that's the first time they even came close to striking since World War II. A tentative contract has been reached, uh, however. Uh, as you can, uh, I would I would really recommend checking out uh, IATSE stories on Instagram. And this is just indicative of a larger trend, which is a lot of members uh, are not sure that they should ratify the contract. Uh, you know, uh, a small part of uh, uh, just one, one post uh, on the Instagram is I'm the wife of a camera operator. We have three young kids. My husband is essentially an absent spouse slash father due to working hours. It's impossible to plan events since his schedule is constantly changing day to day, week to week. IATSE needs to vote no on this agreement. And you could check out uh, the rest of uh, some more posts uh, on the Instagram. Um, but I think as Striketober goes on, um, it's just interesting because I know when I came to the labor movement, I wasn't really, I, I knew as I was a socialist and I wanted to get involved with the labor movement as, you know, as the best uh, instrument of, of, you know, to wage class warfare, but I wasn't so tuned into the intra-union uh, fights for rank and file democracy, right? So that's going to be really big. Uh, and, you know, we, we know that uh, the teachers union, that was all rank and file militancy, right? The, the wave of strikes that came in 2018. So that's going to be really exciting uh, to look into going forward. And if I'm on Ben's good side, he might let me do more of these uh, labor reports where we could do a deeper dive. But I think that's it for now for strike for striketober. Back to you, Ben. Nice. Uh, yeah, so the same way, you know, that Mac from Always Sunny uh, was praising the good work of Ayatsi, uh, what really caught my attention there uh, was the whiskey makers in, in Kentucky. I could do a little video about how, how essential their services are. Uh, to uh, to compliment uh, you know the important role they play in my life to uh, compliment that, uh, but yeah that was great. We'll definitely be, uh, be this will definitely be a regular feature going forward. The labor updates uh, from uh, from Jake. Meanwhile, uh, stuff coming up. Uh, we are going to do another philosophy segment uh, with Jennifer Burgess at the end of the show. We're going to talk about. Um, Charlie Kirk's confusion about roles in the veil of ignorance in the uh, in the post game. Uh, we're going to watch Christopher Hitchens uh, talk about the uh, American healthcare system uh, in uh, in the '90s. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the legacy of uh, the late and very not great uh, Colin Powell and uh, some unfortunate things that you know Jamal Bowman uh, you know said about that and the, you know kind of larger issues. That that raises about uh, the about 
uh, recently dead, uh, terrible people. Um, yes, I agree. Hitchens would absolutely want those whiskey workers taken care of. Meanwhile, though, uh, we have the main attraction uh, for tonight. Uh, Jacobin uh, editor now, formerly staff writer, now editor, uh, Megan Day, uh, is uh, going to tell us about class. Hey, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on. What did we decide we we're going to talk about? The uh, tweets <laughs> I made sometime earlier this yeah, year yes. or last year, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, or at least this the subject, you know, the subject of those tweets. Uh, the so uh, I remember at the time uh, when you were when you were tweeting about this originally. You know, I thought this was super interesting and and would make a good episode. And then I think we couldn't schedule anything back then, and it kind of fell through the cracks. But it turns out we still live in a class society in uh, in 2021, so it's still relevant. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm glad to get the opportunity to talk about this. I remember firing these off, and then people were excited about them. And then I quickly got um, you know swept up in other things. I thought maybe I would write an article about it one day. Perhaps I will. But in the meantime, this is good to return to it and talk talk to you about it. Nice. So uh, this this all comes from the the late. Uh, analytic Marxist thinker Eric Olin Wright, Eric with a K, uh, and uh, I, from his book Class Counts. Yeah, this is from his book Class Counts, which is his first book. Is it his okay. first book? It's an early book. Okay. So uh, a lot of times we, when you think about this, actually one of the videos we watched earlier, somebody said, you know, when you're you're thinking about Marxism, you're talking about two clearly defined groups, but, uh, you know, capitalist workers, uh, right is complicated that a little bit to talk about different, you know, more fine grained class positions people can have under capitalism. And I think we've got a graph from, uh, from that book where he goes through a bunch of different possibilities. Yeah, this is his, as he says, this is his elaborated class typology. I think that he would certainly tell you that this is not definitive, mm -hmm. um, but it is really useful. And the first time that I came across it, it really expanded my understanding of who constitutes the working class and why certain segments or members of the working class behave differently. Obviously, it's not a one-to-one -one on an individual level, but when we're looking at patterns overall in society, we can tell that while there are, you know, everybody who is employed by um, a capitalist and has their labor values or technically speaking, um, uh, has uh, who is exploited by a capitalist and has the, the, uh, the value produced by the labor appropriated, the surplus appropriated by a capitalist, right? These are people who are technically in the working class. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, clearly they don't all behave the same. Um, so that very basic insight from Marxism is not actually adequate to explain all of the phenomena in society, even though it contains a profound truth about capitalism that distinguishes it from other class societies and other types of societies that have existed or could exist. So that's the reason why Eric Olin Wright wanted to make this intervention. Now, this looks really complicated. When you're looking at this, your brain is like going, you know, like it's, this is dizzying. Um, but I can walk you through, I can yeah. walk you through it. It, yeah, it actually is not that hard to understand. Um, if you just, if you just bear with me and keep looking at this, like kind of frightening looking graph. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, we'll, we'll keep it on the screen for the whole explanation. Okay, great. Okay. So the first, the first place that I want to start is, is why we would talk about class structure 
at all? And the answer is because um, if you talk about how classes are structured uh, in your current society, then you can understand important things such as um, class consciousness, like how people come to think of themselves as members of a class, um, class formation, which is how large groups of people start to behave as a class in their own interests as a class, and class struggle, which is what happens when groups of classes constituted as such um, you know, square off against each other. And in that conflict, they actually change society and they change their sort of driving history forward. So you need to, in order to understand all that really important stuff that tells us you know, why society is the way it is and how we can make it better, we first have to understand what class is. And um, that's why we talk about class structure. Um, so the, the very basic Marxist uh, proposition is that not that society had already been you know, achieved this, but that it was mm -hmm. headed in this direction that um, society was breaking up into two major camps, um, which is capitalists and workers. And that was certainly, that was evident to Marx as he was writing in the 19th century alongside Engels, um, that you know, more and more um, peasants were being sort of kicked off of their, the land where they had, had done sort mm -hmm. of subsistence farming um, or, or other, other kinds of um, working to, to make ends meet and they were being recruited into the labor force and they were becoming workers. And through that, more and more people were becoming wealthy and therefore becoming capitalists. They're owning the means of production, they're, buy, they're buying more land, tools, factories and things that are necessary to make the stuff that makes society run. So that was the process they were observing at the time. And then Marx and Engels sort of complicate this by saying, well, we know that there are other classes in society. Like, for example, there are um, members of the petty bourgeoisie, which they defined as people who they own the means of production for themselves, but they don't employ anybody else. So they're not actually using that those means of production to exploit anybody. Um, mm -hmm. You know, today I was driving down the street and I'm near my house and I saw um, a little shack that has like a really cool sign out front um, with a, an evil eye and it's a psychic. And I thought to myself, like that is a petty bourgeois person. That person, unless, you know, this person has employed someone to do their books for them or something like that. It was just mm -hmm. a tiny shack. I'm assuming it's just one person. She doesn't, she owns the means of production. She owns her tarot cards and her um, crystal ball and, um, you know, and all of the other things in her studio. Um, but she doesn't, she's neither exploited by her clients nor is she exploiting anybody. Um, so that's are people who fall outside of that traditional relationship between capitalists and workers, but they sort of have to fit themselves into um, mm -hmm. a society that is dominated by the relationship between capitalists and workers that really defines capitalism. So those are the three kind of um, classes that um, that Marxism proposes for us to, to think think about. Um, that's that would be capitalists, workers, and the outliers, the petty bourgeoisie, mm -hmm. um, but it's just it's it's really useful for helping us move away from a liberal understanding of class, which is mm -hmm. totally gradational. So, like a liberal understanding of class is like is like. Um, you know, like you have more stuff and your life is nicer. It just it seems like you're more physically comfortable. Um, and so you're, you're of a higher class and that's that. And you just go yeah. all the way up and down, like a pure spectrum with infinite dots all the way in between the highest and lowest points is how liberals sort of understand class, which, which leads course, to a lot of confusion. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, like, so, so for example, I mean, that, that tarot card reader that you're talking about, quite possibly, I mean, maybe not now because there have been so many attacks on this, but like, certainly in the 90s, uh, very possibly 
you know, made less money than and and had less material perks than than like a skilled trades, you know, mm-hmm. uh, auto worker who was a member of the UAW and you know might very well even have like a little you know cottage on the lake or something, you know, that was like certainly in Mid Michigan when I grew up, you know, like was very common for people in those sorts of jobs. Absolutely. And I think like that that's where you get into the confusion engendered by the liberal gradational understanding of class. Because what what counts if you're doing that? What counts as a comfortable life? People have different definitions of that, actually. Some people, for example, get really hyper fixated on um, your cultural mannerisms. That's the thing mm-hmm. that defines class. People get fixated on um, you know, how nice your property is to people, you know, there's a, there's a variety of ways to measure that. Um, and it just, it just leads to, I mean, it, frankly, it just leads to a culture war ultimately, if you think about mm-hmm. it that way and not actually understanding that class is, is relational. So the three classes that like the classical Marxism gives us to consider are really useful for breaking out of that liberal gradational frame and getting into a Marxist relational frame where it's like you're defined, a classes are defined by their relationship to each other. So in Marxist class analysis, you would say that in pre, pre-capitalist societies um, and even in some capitalist societies, there are um, you know slaves and slave masters are distinct classes, which are defined by their relationship to each other, right? Um, a slave master is someone who owns slaves and a slave is someone who is owned by a slave master. That's what makes them classes. Um, the same is true for like, you know, feudal lords and serfs. They're they're defined by their relationship to each other, which is why they are classes. And the same is true for capitalists and workers. But it's not true for homeowners and homeless people, which mm-hmm. is how liberals think about class. Liberals think about class as like, if you're a homeowner, you're of a higher class. And if you're a homeless person, you're of a lower class. Obviously, that's true. Right. That's mm-hmm. clearly true. But that's not it's an externality of the, of the real thing, which is the relationship to each other and the relationship to power that constitutes class in the Marxist conception. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because uh, it's good. It's good to have these three categories, but it's obviously not enough to just tell us why certain people behave in certain ways. I mean, like when we look around us, society is so complex. We need something more complex to have actual explanatory power for us to understand why people behave the way that they do, which is why this exists in the first place. So that's my, that is my like uh, uh, prelude to like explaining this complicated thing. Well, I really wound up. I better deliver on this, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be really angry if not. So, all right, so let's let's get the, uh, let's get the old right breakdown. All right, so let's do the Eric Olin Wright breakdown. So if we can pull that back up again, and I promise that I'll actually address the things that are on screen. Okay, so um, in the top left corner, um, he has here uh, broken down. He's these are the people who occupy the like owning the means of production. That's the left column here. These people own the means of production. He wants he breaks up. Um, you know, capitalists and small employers. I think that's kind of semantic. But his point is that there's obviously a distinction between like the owner of GM and like the owner of the sandwich shop on the corner around like near my house, um, which is true. Um, so if you own, if you are an owner who employs many workers, he's calling you a capitalist. I would just say a big capitalist. If you uh, are an owner who employs few workers, he's calling you a small employer, sure, small capitalist, same difference, and none would be petty bourgeoisie. This is the uh, psychic that we were discussing before. Mm-hmm. And society is actually full, full of these kinds of people. They're, they're a minority, but they actually have a very large presence on our physical landscape. You can see them everywhere, right? Um, 
So that accounts for basically everyone who owns the means of production. And then over here on the right-hand side, we have employees. He doesn't want us to just say, okay, and if you work for one of these people, then you are a worker because it doesn't help us explain so many things that we need to understand about capitalist society. Chief among them is why we don't have, um, why certain members of the working class don't behave like their workers and mm -hmm. don't participate in um, working class politics, which weakens working class politics overall and makes it less likely, for example, that people who obviously are definitely workers and totally know it, they don't have anything to join. So it's, it sort of helps us account for the weakness of working class politics. So here he's got, um, he's got a, a grid um, of all the different kinds of employees. And on the right hand side, he's trying to rank them in order of their relationship to authority. So there are managers, there are supervisors, and there are non-managers, right? Um, mm -hmm. Supervisors are just people with like limited supervisory capacity and managers are people who like actually are in charge in the absence of the boss and they are um, you know, assigned to carry out the duties of, of the boss. Yeah, um, so, so, so a manager um, as opposed to a supervisor, you know, somebody who doesn't own the place, but like, you know, might, for example, actually have the power to hire and fire people. Yes. Yeah. And supervisors are like people who are responsible for, um, you know, keeping the show uh, running like during a McDonald's shift or something mm -hmm. like that. They don't have like they don't have significant power. Um, and then, of course, there are people in non-management. Now, if that if that was the only access, that would be very interesting, actually. It would be very interesting uh, for us just to consider like, okay, there are there are workers, but they all have different relationships to authority. Um, and so that's why some of them, you know, don't side with workers. Um, but actually it's, it's more interesting and more complicated than that, which is that we also have to talk about relationship to scarce skills. If you look down at the bottom, you can see that's what he's working with down at the bottom of the graph. Um, so by non-skilled workers, I want to clarify something. He doesn't mean that mm -hmm. these workers don't have skills. I mean, I right. think maybe that he, if he didn't want to imply that, he probably should have chosen maybe a different vocabulary. But, you know, like, that's not what he means at all. Obviously, it requires skill to do um, most or all jobs. Um, but what he means is that some skills are more scarce than others. And the more scarce your skills are, the... Um, the more your boss has to pamper you, basically, like your boss has to pamper you in order to, um, for one thing, your boss doesn't don't want you to go to the competition. Um, for another, your boss, in many cases, doesn't totally understand what you do. Uh -huh. Right. And which means that your boss doesn't actually have the ability to monitor and control your labor, which means that your boss has to offer you other inducements to put in as much effort as possible. Um, so you end up with, you know, workers having a really good relationship with the boss that isn't really defined necessarily by um, by like daily experiences of humiliation and domination. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like it's a similar in the sense to being like a manager. If you're a manager, the boss has to ply you with um, what Eric Olin Wright calls loyalty, uh, loyalty rent. It's like, I'm not there. I'm the boss. I'm not there. I need you to carry out, you know, my vision and my absence. Um, and to do that, I'm going to do things like invite you on really great retreats, um, mm -hmm. give you opportunities for career advancement and make you feel like you are sitting at the boss's table. 
right? Um, and the same is true for experts or people with really, really um, scarce skills. You know, this is where you get tech workers and the kombucha on tap and you get like, mm -hmm. you know, that actually is, this actually does explain that phenomenon of like why people with really scarce skills are both able to command higher wages because there are fewer people out there who can be hired to replace them and why they have such nice works, nice seeming work lives, mm -hmm. which make them less likely to have anti-capitalist feelings. Um, and so like, does that make sense? If I've explained the relationship to authority and the relationship to scarce skills, now you look at this graph and uh -huh. you've got a better sense of the differences between um, all the different workers. And if you look at the bottom right square non-skilled workers, that's gonna be just like, you know, a worker at McDonald's like flipping burgers, all the way a diagonal line up to the top expert managers, that's gonna be the CEO of the McDonald's corporation who doesn't own McDonald's, but is a person with scarce skills and extreme managerial authority. Um, now we've accounted for the broadest possible swath of the working class. And that's why I like this graph so much. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, I mean, just, just to kind of circle and underline the part about skills, uh, of, of course, there are lots of things that people who have the aptitude to do a job or have been doing it for a while, you know, and learn things uh, that, you know, that, that's going to take lots of people, you know, people who don't, you know, who haven't done that a long time to pick up. Um, this is one of the reasons, by the way, that, you know, we're seeing this right now with John Deere every time there's like a big strike, the company tries to do the thing where they, they, uh, they bring in, uh, you know, white collar workers right. at various points in this graph uh, to uh, to do, you know, jobs involved in physical labor. It's usually a disaster uh, be because those are skills, but unfortunately they're not the kinds of skills usually that command, uh, you know, this kind of leverage on the labor market that you get, certainly if you're an expert, but even if you're a skilled worker in the sense that he's talking about, like maybe somebody who's gone through an apprenticeship program or even like, especially depending on what era we're talking about here, has just like taught themselves some programming language that very people, you know, a few people know how to use, uh, who, which then, you know, gives them this, this different, uh, different kind of relationship to the boss for all the reasons that you're explaining. So one of the things uh, that I really liked about this, uh, and, and I, I mean, I think it's worth, you know, it's worth going into that, we're talking about, like, we're still talking here, right, about um, this objective relationship to economic structures, which is a really important point, right? Like, like you wrote an article uh, for uh, for Jacobin called uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, called "It's It's Not Classism, You Know, It's Class," uh, which is you know really important, you know, making the really important point that we're we're not talking about it. Identity category here. You know the, the primary the primary problem that workers face is not that people have prejudice against them because their jobs. I'm mean, not that that doesn't exist, but that's not the primary problem. Yeah, that clearly exists. I think that um, it clearly exists. Both prejudice and like class identity are things that clearly exist. It's just that those are made from the raw material of an objective relationship between people who occupy different positions in society who really can't occupy any other position. Like if you're a worker, you don't have anything else besides your labor power to 
sell. And so you have to go to the market, you have to take that to the market and sell it in order to afford the basic necessities of your life in order to reproduce yourself as a person in order to live to see another day. Um, and so that's the raw material. And then on top of that, we have all of this ideological scaffolding. Um, my, my thinking is, and that's why it's really important to understand this class structure stuff, actually, mm -hmm. is because it's what's underneath. It's what's underneath all of the stuff that we experience out in the world as people, the very real stuff like, you know, class prejudice and like nasty ideologies, which I think are in many cases, sometimes deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a political sense, I would say a, a, a deliberate um, attempt to make sense of of the world um, in a way that justifies the status quo. But mm -hmm. in a private sense, I also think that there's an undeliberate um, psychological need for justification that people have both on all up and down the spectrum. And that includes capitalists, it includes workers, like why why are things this way? Um, and I think that capitalists wanna convince themselves, you know, people who are wealthy wanna convince themselves it's you know, it's not, it's because, um, you know, they, there's a meritocracy and they are better and they worked harder and so on. And some, in some senses, workers also would like to convince themselves of something like that because it's less sort of existentially troubling. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're always, when you're trying to build class consciousness, which is the project of socialists, um, you know, you're always trying to fight against that impulse to kind of like buy into capitalist ideological justifications. But in any case, all of that, um, is built on top of this very real foundation of how is the stuff that is that makes society run how how is it actually organized mm -hmm. um and and who is slotted into what relationship with each other in the process of production of, of not just production of things but the production of the entire world every day it's like a show it's like a performance every day you mm -hmm. wake up and you reproduce the world and people have different roles um, in many cases that they can't break out of um, and all of the ideological stuff comes sort of on top of that um, now it is a feedback loop in the sense that if you can actually do good ideological work to convince workers that they um, are the universal class in the Marxist sense, and that if they fight for their interests, then society will be better, um, mm -hmm. then you can actually change the material basis. You can change the way that society is is structured, um, but you, you can't ignore, you certainly can't ignore these real relationships that people have to each other in the process of production every day. Yeah, and, and I think that it is, I mean, it, I mean, it's a simple point, but I think it's a really important one. Like if you, you know, can remember 2017, which I know I barely can, but uh, to, to the extent that I do, you know, I remember a lot of articles in legacy media outlets purporting to be going into the heartland, you know, to do some anthropological investigation, you know, of what the yokels are like. And it would say, oh, we're gonna you know, interview some working class Trump voters. And then you read halfway down the article, be like, oh yeah, this guy like owns a boat shop or something. Sure. Uh, you know, what they meant by working class was like, right. has a truck, listens to country music. It is true that in general, there has been a class, there's been like a class dealignment in our politics. And so in some sense, if everyone, if there's a consensus that everyone just agrees that class means like mm -hmm. what food you wear and where you live and what music you listen to and who you vote for, um, then you're kind of, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. That's why we want to build class consciousness. That's the opposite of class consciousness. That's just a misunderstanding. Um, it's, it's just identity politics in place of mm -hmm. 
like awareness of your real class location and class interests. Um, but it does seem it's so pervasive. Um, this idea that, you know, um, where, you know, like your, your sort of cultural diet, your, um, your interests, um, your mannerisms are the stuff of class. In reality, in many cases, um, they're very linked to class. Um, um, but they are, they don't actually constitute class. Mm-hmm. Uh, class is, class is constituted by a relationship between a relationship that revolves around exploitation. Um, and um, all of that stuff has to do with like, you know, like if you have particular mannerisms, they're just going to be the mannerisms of the people that you are around. And there's a lot of class segregation in society. Um, let's talk about, um, you know, college, like mm-hmm. um, college does have a relationship to class, but your degree doesn't tell you what class you're in. It actually, mm-hmm. your degree is a form of credentialing, which puts you in a bracket of workers that has more scarce skills. Right. Puts you on the bottom row of the right hand side of the uh, graph. It, it, yeah, exactly. It moves you toward it moves. It gives you more ability to command that skill rent that Eric Olin Wright was talking about because you have a unique degree. And as many people have found out, not all degrees are, are created. Equal. Right. Um, and you can you can get a degree that seems fancy, and then it turns out that it actually you can't. It doesn't give you the ability to um, to command that kind of skill rent. So it's like a college degree is not the stuff of class. It's just linked to class. And this kind of graph is useful for us because it tells us like what is actually underneath all of that. Um, and yeah, you had before you had popped up kind of the like outline stuff that I did. Yeah, yeah. I really so, tossed so, these off, but let's talk about them a little bit. Yeah. So these were, these were really good. Like I, I liked the way that you're talking about how, uh, you know, we, we kind of went over what the graph means, but thinking about different parts of it could actually tell us some really interesting things about, uh, contemporary politics. Uh, right. So like, yeah. you know, like let's, uh, What's uh, you know when we we talk about this uh, this part here, uh, one of the first points points you made is is increasingly this is what the uh, this is what the Democratic Party is selling itself to. Yeah, totally. I mean, the Democratic Party, it's not it's confusing to people because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party can claim to be the party of just the capitalists or just the workers. We don't have a working class party, and we have two parties that both advocate for the interests of capital, but also require Mm -hmm. um, the votes of a large share of the country's working class in order to get elected. So it's just like topsy-turvy and kind of confusing. And that's why, you know, the culture war rushes in as a substitute for class. Um, But it's also true that if you kind of peel peel back that culture war, you are going to find that the way that the parties are pitching themselves at any given time, and that changes all the time, is is going to um, point to like specific, you know, points on this graph. And this is the, I highlighted this is like this is what I feel like the Democratic Party is trying to do right now. Mm-hmm. They're basically they're they're primarily interested in creden- in credentialing and in scarce skills, right? Um, and um, when it when it comes to you know, like they obviously are looking out for capitalists and small employers. It's, the industries are split. Like there are some mm-hmm. there are some big industries that go that break Democrat and some that break Republican. So you've got your you know, Democratic Party capitalists, like the entire entertainment industry, for example, and tech for the most part, though that might be changing. Um, mm-hmm. Healthcare, actually. And actually, if you look at it by the numbers, finance leans Democrat um, in terms of donations, though it changes all the time. Um, but then you've also got, um, you know, like experts. Experts are people like 
like scientists. There are people mm-hmm. like um, librarians. I mean, I would consider these people working class. I mean, these people are workers, but they're also in a colloquial sense, middle class, and they don't necessarily identify with those people on the other side mm-hmm. of the graph, those non-skilled workers, those non-skilled supervisors. They actually kind of more identify in a vertical sense, as you can see here. That's why I outlined it that way. And the Democratic Party is not only appealing to, but actually encouraging that kind of identification, right? Like you're a, you're a scientist who works in a university laboratory. The Democratic Party is uniting you with Fauci, like Fauci. Fauci's like an expert manager all the way at the top of the graph. Do you see? Because it's emphasizing these mm-hmm. scarce skills, these credentials, um, that's the kind of the way the party pitches itself. And you can see that it does actually carve out different fractions, different class fractions and what it's doing. And this is why it's important to talk about in relation to politics is the Democratic Party is engaged in a process of class formation. It is forming mm-hmm. class type, you know, like they're not actually corresponding to real classes, but class class type um um, like squadrons that are going out and making making the world in their image or attempting to make the world in their image. And what we want is, if I could take the liberty to say this, what we want is a party that can actually do, encourage workers to think of themselves as workers instead right. of encouraging you know, your average scientist who works in a university laboratory to identify with Fauci and also to identify with you know, the good democratic and in- entertainment industry um, uh, you know, owners, the capitalists, uh, because they're all on the same team. And that's kind of what it's doing here. Um, but you yeah, can go to the next slide and I can, oh, go ahead, Ben. Yeah, this, this um, you know, one of the things that this really reminds me of is uh, Thomas Frank's book, uh, Listen Liberal, uh, from 2016. And, you know, Frank's class analysis, of course, you know, is not anything like this fine-grained, uh, you know, he's not a Marxist, he certainly hasn't read Eric Wright, but uh, but he talks about you know phrase like the professional class like I, th- I think he's intuitively getting at a lot of what's captured in this chart and what you're talking about about the uh the democratic party and i think actually looking at the chart you, know, you can really see a lot of the points he makes like like he says uh at one point in there that uh that one of the uh you know the reasons why you know like 90s neoliberal, you know, kinds of kinds of Clintonoid Democrats, for example, uh, were extremely hot, and you know, really even Obama, you know, era, you know, neoliberals were sort of viscerally hostile to uh, teachers unions. You know, he says is that uh, these are these are college educated, uh, credential professionals uh, who still, you know, in other words, people at the uh, the sort of bottom middle of the uh, of the graph, you know, at the uh, you know maybe even edging into, you know, somewhere in there, right? And, uh, but who have the values in some ways of steel workers, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they, they want to, uh, they want wages to be based on seniority, you know, rather than, you know, individual accomplishment. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I do think that it's also worth noting that the Democratic Party, the sort of emblematic, um, like working class voter of the Democratic Party, the, the emblematic square in this you know grid mm-hmm. that used to represent the, um, the Democratic Party during the height of the New Deal coalition was skilled workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think it's experts. I think it's shifted to the left a little bit. Um, so this one right here that you're showing, the one with red, the reason that I, I did that one is actually just, this is another, this is not about the Democratic Party. This is about DSA. I think that people often talk about 
oh, DSA, you know, maybe people are, you know, working class in some technical sense, but everybody has college degrees. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's like, first of all, it's not entirely true, but it's like, let's be honest, it's like pretty true. Right. Um, but but this, this is why I think it's important to talk about this. The issue is not college degrees. It's what's mm -hmm. underneath college degrees, which is that we're talking about particular fractions of the working class to the exclusion of others, unfortunately. I see like experts and skilled workers as being essentially the, and college degrees are a way that you can get there. Mm -hmm. um, um, but the, but this is the real, um, this is the basis of, of the distinction. And the DSA or the socialist movement in general um, its responsibility is to extend rightward into mm -hmm. non-skilled workers. By the way, these are not, these are equally sized squares. Um, if you actually did them the size of like the population, <laughs> non-skilled workers would just explode and take up this entire screen. Um, so, you know, it's not that DSA members as, you know, the typical DSA member that you're picturing in your mind is not mm -hmm. working class um, in, you know, some technical sense. It's that um, most working class people um, exist in another square that is not contained in the what I've outlined in this rectangle. Um, and that furthermore, they're not, you know, we're talking about this, the, when we talk about loyalty rent and skill rent, we're talking about inducements to class treason. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, um, you know, like, like, you know, um, people who can be convinced to kind of like, um, you know, get off the ship onto a life raft if the ship is sinking. Um, and non-skilled workers, um, that's not their problem. Their problem is that they're completely demoralized. The problem with somebody like an expert or a manager is that um, they can sort of be recruited to the other team or at least half recruited to the other team or it's certainly recruited to, um, you know, um, temper their um, enthusiasm and mm -hmm. their um, alignment with other members of the working class at key moments of struggle. Um, so that can be an issue. Um, now I think that most of the people I know in DSA are incredibly ideologically committed, and I would right. not, you know, question that at all. On an individual level, there's no doubt about it. Um, but um, broadly speaking, we need non-skilled uh, and skilled workers, I think in particular, to be the vanguard of um, class struggle. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the problem with having a socialist left that's right now, all you know, whatever it is, you know, ninety percent, you know, composed of people in those two squares, um, you know, notwithstanding yeah. the occasional petty bourgeois podcast or whatnot, but the uh, you know <laughs> almost entirely composed of people in those two squares is uh, is is not that the individuals who like become active socialists who are in those two squares, not that you have to worry about them, uh, but that the people that they're sort of acculturated to, the people that they know, the people that they're in the best position to organize are in those two squares, which is not to say that there's no organizing to be done in there, but as you point out, that's not the majority of the population, and it's also not the majority of people who are... Uh, at least under certain circumstances, much more likely to, you know, to be militant, you know, much more likely to, you know, to actually be the natural base of an effective socialist movement. And I think also, like, like, I think one of the things that's actually really useful about looking at this, um, this grid in front of us is that we can see our tasks a little bit clearer. I mean, in DSA, you have a pretty sizable portion of people who, you know, went to college and they have the ability to maybe 
in their workplaces, be skilled workers, certainly, but, you know, maybe even muscle their way up to expert or something, um, but actually are choosing to go get jobs either in like um, highly representative skilled workplaces or mm -hmm. in as non-skilled workers with the intention of um, organizing from there because they know that it's a smarter and better place to be. Um, and I agree with that. I think that's a good, that's a good strategy if you happen to be one of those uh, people. Um, because I think that, you know, you can, you can see up, up here at the very top left, you have expert managers who are the least likely to ever, ever join in any kind of anything approximating a socialist revolution. I mean, you're basically guaranteed that they won't, right? Mm -hmm. But down here on the right, if you can get something popping, these are the people who actually will see it as their ticket to living a decent life and will really actually struggle till the end for it. Um, the only reason they don't do that right now is because there's nothing going to join in. And so they're incredibly demoralized, um, which they probably are right to be, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, they will, what will they do? Sacrifice their, you know, they have to wake up and go to work every day. It's hard enough as it is. They're not going to sacrifice um, that for a chance on something that won't necessarily work. Um, yeah. So that's why it's important to think about all this stuff. Yeah, which, 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 I mean, I, I think demoralization is probably something that, um, you know, we've got way too much of it, but I think it's probably something we don't talk and think about enough, right? You know, like, like, uh, even, even within, uh, like people who voted in Democratic Party primaries last year, which is, of course, tilted, you know, towards the, uh, the left side, you know, of, uh, of the, you know, the graph, because, you know, lots of people, you know, who are on the, you know, bottom extreme right part of the graph, you know, non-skilled non workers are less likely to, you know, be even tracking, you know, when, like, when their state's primary is or whatever. But, like, even within people, you know, who, who might be, you know, colloquially middle class, you know, the squares that you know, rises here, but certainly among people who are in that non-skilled worker graph, you know, but among everybody, it's not like Bernie Sanders lost the primaries, because people didn't want healthcare, right? Like, you know, there, there's overwhelming polling evidence that certainly people who voted in Democratic primaries were overwhelmingly favorable to mm -hmm. uh, to, to that program. It's just that people don't vote based on preferences that they don't think are ever going to come to pass. Like you know that that because because if your if your entire experience of politics is that you know basically nothing good and important ever really happens, you know, which, which I think is, uh, I, I think is a lot of people's experience of politics that, uh, you know, I mean, certainly anybody who's, you know, experience of politics is limited to, you know, to the last couple of decades, you know, that it's that you have this kind of bone deep capitalist realism, you know, where you think that this is that, um, you know, like you don't take seriously the idea that even big reforms could happen, you know? So like if you're in the U S if a pollster asks you, would you like healthcare, you know, the government to pay for your healthcare, you say yes, but uh, you're not particularly motivated to, to be involved, you know, in, or maybe even vote based on that because, yeah. you know, come on, that's not going to really get a habit. Or if you're a Briton, you know, it's not that like, it's not like you don't think it would be nice to renationalize the railroads and, you know, and, and, and shore up the NHS, like Jeremy Corbett is saying, but none of that stuff really sounds like it's going to happen anyway. And whether Brexit happens or not, that could actually change based on the election, you know, so, so you, you know, so you vote, uh, vote based on that. And, you know, and, and, and that's also, you know, I, I think a big reason why, I mean, forever, I mean, you know, before this year, you know, there, there's been tons of polls showing that 
the number of people who would like to be in a union vastly outstrips the number of people who are in unions. But, you know, you're not going to like take, you know, take risks, maybe get fired, you know, as part of an effort to organize one if you are understandably not particularly optimistic about the uh, the outcome, because why would you be? Yeah, and I think that parties have a big role to play in this. And this is something that we talk about, you know, on the socialist left a lot is the role that parties play in class formation. Um, it's kind of a self, it's self-fulfilling prophecy or it's a kind of uh, like endless, endless feedback loop that, you know, if you have no party that's talking to non-skilled non workers and skilled workers and like non-skilled supervisors and all of these people who are like sort of like squarely kind of you're the working class. Um, if you have nobody that's talking to them about how politics can can make the world better for them, then they're not going to care about politics. And the less they care about politics, the less they vote and the less likely it is that, you know, that the parties even feel beholden to them anyway, right? Because you're writing off 60% of the population who are not voting in the elections anyway. So you just focus on other people. You don't have to worry about it too much. But what if you had an apparatus that was actually trying to rebridge that severed gap? Not that it's ever been like fully in the United States ever realized, but certainly in other places it has been, you know, like um, the German Social Democratic Party in the early 20th century. That was his whole job was to speak to these people in these bottom right kind of cluster of squares and, um, you know, try to get them thinking about politics as a vehicle for the expression of class interests in antagonistic relation to the people at the very, very top left, not the expert mm -hmm. managers, but the capitalists up there in that corner. Um, mm -hmm. And what we don't have, we don't have that. In fact, we have what I showed, what I, we just talked about with the Democratic Party, the left, the, those like that left six, left six, squares I highlighted as like that's the Democratic Party and then if you go back to the one you just had the green I think this is the Republican Party now obviously there are people who you know vote all over the place like all over and all these you always 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 find a million exceptions I mean genuinely a million or, or many million exceptions but as a pattern this right here seemed to be especially during the Trump era now things are mm -hmm. kind of up in the air but during the Trump era this seemed to be what the Republican Party was trying to say was its base so you had the the Democrats talking about you know the experts and small employers as long as you're on the blue team now you have mm -hmm. the Republic the Republicans talking about the small employers that are on their team the capitalists that are on their team um, and all of these, you know, this this band of like supervisors and managers in particular was very key to um, the ethos of uh, the Trumpist Republican Party. And who knows where it will go from here. But that was like the big boater parade. I mean, you, that's how they afforded the boats is because their managers is because they were paid in loyalty rent. These are people who either own small businesses or they are. Um, you know, right hand men to people who, you know, own big or small businesses. These are a lot of these people are managers. They're in supervisory roles other, over other workers. And what the Republican Party has done is stitched them together with capitalists in this in small employers in this particular formation, just as the Democratic Party stitches its preferred sectors mm -hmm. of the working class together um, with the capitalists in its preferred formation. And you notice everybody's leaving out skilled workers and non-skilled workers those are the two those are the two that are left out of both of these 
uh, arrangements. And those are two historically that especially in tandem are the best vanguard for the working class. Um, skilled workers, because their skills are scarce, but they're not so scarce that they're you know bought off with kombucha on tap, which means mm -hmm. that when they quit working, real shit really grinds to a halt. Um, and they and and then also non-skilled workers because they make up the vast majority of the working class and they're the people who are riot or die because their futures depend on transformation of society and they know it. Um, they know it in the right circumstance when transformation seems possible at all. So, so this one that you just pulled up, this was just my attempt to say like, okay, down there in the yellow square, those are the non-skilled workers. Like I said, I, I want to, I would rather add in skilled skilled workers as like. Skilled and non-skilled workers, it's like shading. There's not a hard line between them, but they make up the real kind of like core and heart of the working class. Um, but let's just take non-skilled workers for the reason that I just said, which is that if there's a revolution really happening, these are the people who are hardest to get to care about anything. But if they actually do decide to care, these are the people who will like actually fight at the barricades, right? Because it's like a good future or a shitty future is on the line. There's no medium future, which is true for a lot of these people. Um, on in the other squares. So they have to form alliances. Um, yes, they are the majority, but um, they're lacking certain resources. They're lacking, um, you know, certain like time, for example, or money. Um, and they're lacking, um, um, you know, st the strategic location in some, in some cases, like skilled workers are just more strategically placed to be able to cause chaos and havoc um, if they decide not to work on strike or threaten a strike. I mean, IATSE is a good example of skilled workers. Um, you know, bringing an industry, certainly not to its knees at this at this moment, but certainly bringing them to the table with a strike threat. So non-skilled workers have to form alliances. The alliances uh, are all over the map, basically, um, in the history of class struggle. Um, but everybody in the purple square, you can form an alliance with that has some basis in class politics. Um, in in the orange square, if you're forming an alliance with those people, it's not based on class politics. It's based on culture politics, period. Always, 100%. You're not there other because you're just overlooking the inherent antagonism between workers and capitalists if you're forming some kind of alliance between people in that yellow square and people in that orange square. Um, petty bourgeoisie I left out because they really are kind of like outside the realm of production and they kind of go with the political changing of the winds often. And in many cases, they're just kind of up for grabs and it's very individual what their ideology is. Um, so that's, do you see the point that I'm making there about alliances and, um, mutu and mutual antagonism? And these are the people that are most likely to build alliances with, I think. Um, you've got, you know, the pink, the pink square is like you're most likely to build an alliance with. I think it's, I think the non-skilled workers and skilled workers are really peas in a pod. At least the history of class struggle suggests as much. And then extending further, you can also build alliances with people in that, in that blue square as well. Yeah, that makes that. Yeah, that definitely uh, makes uh, makes a lot of sense. That you know that if that people who, uh, thank you, Antonio, uh, people who are uh, in, you know, the ironically far right square, you know, the, the most susceptible, you know, susceptible to uh, socialist politics in better circumstances uh, are, uh, you know, that skilled workers are the people that it's easiest to make that kind of alliance with, you know, people, you know, closer in the quadrant, you know, getting into, you know, supervisors, 
uh, a little bit less so, people, you know, further out, you know, a, a little bit less so, um, you know, petty bourgeoisie without no employees, yeah, maybe, right, you know, under, under some, you know, some circumstances, uh, you know, you, you have, you know, like there's certainly plenty of attempts historically, you know, by, by socialist movements to, you know, form some sort of alliance with, you know, small independent farmers or, you know, or, or, or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but, I, but I really like your point that the, that once you're in the, uh, the, the top and middle left, right. You know, then any alliance that's going on is based on something other than, uh, class interest. And, and one thing this definitely makes me think of is, uh, what sort of passes for, uh, for populism on, on the right, you know, that there's okay. this weird thing that's happened where, uh, all of these, like, People who I think are basically just Reaganite Republicans, uh, you know, have suddenly, you know, started calling themselves populist. They'll use the word corporate, you know, as an insult. Uh, but I, I think one thing that is super interesting about their rhetoric, if you're paying close attention, is that they're actually never really talking about anybody in the uh, the bottom right squares of the graph. That that really, when they talk about, you know, the little guy or whatever. What they're talking about is the bottom two squares of the owner graph. Yes. Yeah. They're talking about petty bourgeoisie and small employers. And I would say also their populist right has kind of a soft spot for managers. It's almost like if you took that left from from mm -hmm. the own the entire all three squares of the owner column and the three and the, the three squares of the top of the employees column. Uh -huh. um, row rather um, the managers, skilled managers, non-skilled managers, like that kind of um, sideways L shape is really ironically, uh -huh. those are the people who are being appealed to with this populist messaging. Um, I don't even that it's actually quite the opposite of populism when you think about that, because that's the top of the graph all the way. Um, I mean, I do think that right wing populists have been able to uh -huh. appeal to certain skilled workers, mm -hmm. um, especially certain segments of the, um, especially the certain skilled workers who have been, who used to be embraced by the Democratic Party and are kind of used to being um, embraced by the Democratic Party, but have been like totally abandoned and screwed over. Like for example, Rust Belt, like manufacturing workers who've experienced, you know, like outsourcing and like depressed wages. Um, and towns hollowed out by outmigration and deaths of despair. Like these workers, it's true, they, they swung from, we have stats on it, we know the numbers, they were able, they swung from, you know, voting for Obama twice in many cases to voting for Trump. And they did in many cases hear the siren song of um, right-wing populism, such as, it was, such as it was represented by Donald Trump mm -hmm. in that moment. Um, in terms of a dramatic realignment, I'm not really sure that it's evidence of that so much as an abandoned category, just like flailing in the wind, sort of up for grabs um, and fit itself into the coalition that it um, most identified with that was on offer, which was this Republican Beautiful Voters Coalition. Right. Um, for cultural reasons, for cultural reasons, like, you know, for like flyover country and country music and like, you know, Christian family values reasons, not for class reasons necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think sometimes uh, some of the economic pseudo-populist messaging uh, 
you know, might appeal, you know, to uh, to some people in the the skilled worker and you know, an, an expert, you know, boxes. You know, sometimes even the unskilled worker boxes. But you know, but the but uh, but that's because of the effect of the cult, you know, the cultural stuff in kind of uh, distracting, you know, from the actual economic content of it, right? Because 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 in all of these right wing populist appeals. Right. There is very deliberately a conflation of those two things, you know, that they that like they uh, they they really love using you know phrases like you know woke corporations, you know, you, you, you know, and, and it's like okay, but you don't really dislike the corporation part; you dislike the woke part. You know what it is too? It's it's like um, the right is good at essentially name checking something economic and then like using the like attention like diverting the attention into cultural stuff like by by that i mean like in indiana there was a factory that made ball bearings that was in 2016 it was announced that it was going to be shut down and moved to mexico and donald trump tweeted something like this factory is going to be shut down no more exclamation point and it was like, okay, what does no more actually mean? Like, is Donald Trump proposing to like, you know, um, like ban capital flight? Like is Donald Trump proposing to nationalize this factory in order to make sure that the people of this area retain their job? No, he's not proposing anything like that. He's just saying, you, I see, he's just interpolating this group of people. And then the rest of his messaging, the messaging with substance is all culture war stuff, right? Um, and, you know, and the Democratic Party can be blamed for this because the Democratic Party has simply chosen to go in a different direction in terms of who it's choosing to interpolate. I mean, it's leaving those people up for grabs. Right. Um, and, you know, those people are used to being appealed to with more substantive politics during the New Deal coalition era. Um, and you can understand they're, you know, they're sort of like a politicized group of people unlike the sort of great mass of like mm -hmm. non-skilled workers who just like don't really pay attention to politics. These are like skilled workers who are used to thinking about themselves as like agents of history because of the last 50 years of American history, which has actually, um, while never ever putting them in the driver's seat, has always considered them an important element of the political process. And so, you know, one, the party that was supposed to um, be, they were supposed to be sitting in the, in the passenger seat just like booted them out of the car. I mean, they're used to being in a car. They're looking for another car to get into, right? I mean, I don't know if that metaphor works, but I think, no, I, I think, I think, think. Yeah, I think that's good. And um, yeah, I mean, if the Democratic Party's messaging uh, is is all about, you know, people who are at the very least in the expert square of the of the bottom, you know, of the bottom part of the, uh, of the, the employee graph, uh, then, um, you know, then anybody who's who's outside of it, you know, who's who's like, yeah. you know, even a skilled worker, you know, who didn't go to college, for example, uh, you know, is, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not, they're not trying to appeal to you. So even a really half-assed appeal, like uh, a, you know, we're gonna, you know, Donald Trump is gonna is gonna tweet sympathetically about you, or you know, they're they're gonna, uh, you know, like. Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz going to use the word corporate, you know, as uh, as an insult and, you know, sort of vaguely suggest that he likes the people or something like that, you know, that like as as low effort as those are, you know, if yeah. what they're competing with is no appeal whatsoever, those low effort appeals are, you know, are going to make some headway. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I, I think that 
that you know no but nobody in the dominant in the in the in the sort of dominant wings of either party has mm -hmm. much interest in making similar even rhetorical appeals to non-skilled workers um it used to be until bernie sanders that you wouldn't even talk about you wouldn't even utter the words working class everybody mm -hmm. was it was all the middle class i mean it mm -hmm. was almost as though it was almost like a punitive orientation towards the working class. It was like, if you are working class, then you are not the person that I am talking to. I am not talking to you. You should work harder to have a create a better life for yourself. But if you're in the middle class and you're struggling, we're going to help stop your sink down into the punished proletariat. Um, <laughs> like Bernie really, I think, um, changed that. And you see some reverberations in the Democratic Party. Oh, this one. Okay, this was my final one. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Um, what did I say on Twitter? I said that sometimes you'll see something like this pop up. Um, I think this was truer a year ago than it is now, um, where with the whole blue box looks sort of aligned against the pink box. Um, Medicare yeah. for all for a while was shaping up like this. I think Medicare for all has kind of fallen off people's priorities list. And so I'm not really mm -hmm. sure what to think about it. But um, yeah, it's, you know, every the hyper dominance of the capitalist class in neoliberal capitalism is a unique feature of our of our current system that we need to understand has like it has implications for how alliances get created on this map and there are some times where capitalists are so out of control and it hurts everybody else so much that you'll see some weird alliances being formed um and this contradicts what I said earlier about how if there's ever any mm -hmm. small employers and non-skilled workers, and it's not class-based. And I said that with great authority, but like this, for example, is something where Medicare for all is, is something that actually would greatly relieve the burden on literally every single person besides pharmaceutical executives. And I actually mm -hmm. even mean other capitalists. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there are other capitalists who like experience like their, their experience of attempting to get healthcare for themselves in this country is exorbitantly expensive in a way they don't like. Like they can afford it, but they don't like it, right? Um, well, well and, I mean, not to yeah. not to mention that if you're a small capitalist, um, or you know, I mean, even not that small in some yeah. cases, uh, the the healthcare costs, right? Uh, you know, just like the the costs of paying for your employees' healthcare, you know, can can be a massive uh, a massive problem for you. And maybe once you you know you get up to the level of well, certainly once you get up to the level of Jeff Bezos, being Jeff Bezos, it's not that much of a problem. And and your your butter your bread is clearly buttered on the side of of no Medicare for all because because uh, it's not that big an expense for you and it and it keeps your labor force a little bit more docile for them to rely on you for uh, for healthcare. But even if even if even lower level capitalists certainly anybody right. in the small employer part uh, at the very least their interests with regard to something like Medicare for all are a lot more ambiguous. Yeah, I think that's right. Um... And the reason that, well, I brought this up just to say that, you know, uh, I mean, I guess I brought, I guess I added this one in just to say, like, you know, we have, we live in such an extreme version of like neoliberalism, which I've seen defined, I believe, by Adolf Reed as um, capitalism without a labor opposition, which just means mm -hmm. like, you know, the endless, endless ascendant growth of like a very, very small handful of elite capitalists at the expense of everybody else. Um, that you're going to see strange things happen on this chart that wouldn't happen otherwise, um, just because of our just like extreme runaway inequality. Um, so that's that's an example of that. But then I did say that um, in keeping with my previous point about how if there's an alliance between 
anything on the any between especially you know cap capitalists of any size and mm -hmm. workers then it's not really like a class based we're not talking mm -hmm. about class politics here i do think it's important when we're talking about medicare for all to um try in our messaging to foreground um what it would mean for the vast majority of people who don't own businesses not as a smart business decision but as a entitlement that people should have a right that we should enshrine for all people because people deserve good lives um, and i have warned against like i wrote an article in 2017 i co-wrote an article with dustin guastella where we actually it was like a letter to bernie it was like stop bringing these like capitalists on stage to talk about how great medicare for all would be for business not because it isn't true and not because that it wouldn't be useful in terms of passing medicare for all but because your job bernie sanders is actually to engage in the process of class formation, and that is actually confusing and not helping. Um, mm -hmm. And you can win Medicare for all without projecting that on stage all the time, actually. I think in the back rooms, it'll be important for there to be a schism in the capitalist class in order to win Medicare for all. But in the front, where we're doing politics, it's so important for politicians to be engaged in this critical process of stitching these squares on this grid together in a way that makes sense for us to gear up for some kind of actual class struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I also, I also think that even if, um, you know, even if you're maybe a small employer, certainly if, if you're like maybe in the gray area between the small employer box and, you know, and, and, and the big capitalist box, um, I mean, I think your interests with regard to, to Medicare for all are ambiguous, right? Like, like, cause, cause you, cause you are, yeah. I mean, employer, employee healthcare does cost you a lot of money and obviously you'd like not to spend that money. Uh, but I do think that part of the reason there has like most people who make up most chambers of commerce are not Jeff Bezos. They're not members of the Walton family. Right. right? And, and, Nevertheless, right, you know, you're not going to find a lot of chambers of commerce, right, that support Medicare for all. And I don't, and I think that there's a, there's a, you know, without saying it's, it's entirely conscious or, you know, or, or, or anything like that. I mean, I think that there is a, there is an element of, of self-interest uh, there that on the part of all of those non-Bezos, non-Walton, you know, employers, that they do kind of realize that they get something out of, employees relying on them for this thing yes. and, and having that string binding them to them. And I think that the smartest capitalists also are of different minds and some of them are actually better at gaming things out like in a class struggle sense than others. Some of them are very immediate and they're like, damn, books look bad. Let's make sure we take care of Medicare for all. But if, you know, uh, with a little bit of study and a little bit of consideration, any capitalist can come to the conclusion that um to take us back to where we started, a more dependent and deprived workforce is a more exploitable workforce and exploit exploitation is the hinge of the relationship between capitalists and workers. It is the is a precondition for capitalist profits. Not all profits come directly from exploitation, but without exploitation, we don't have capitalism. We don't have capitalists and workers. Um, we have something else entirely. So in order to protect their interests as capitalists, which are always to maximize profits. Um, mm -hmm. Medicare for all is a dangerous proposition, even if it would make the books, even if it would make it a little bit easier to like make ends meet. Yeah. I mean, look, what, what have we been seeing? You know, what, like, why do we have striketober now? Because mm -hmm. people are a little bit less worried that they lose their job 
uh, you know, that they won't be able to find another one. I mean, that, that, that certainly, it's not the whole story, but I mean, that's certainly a big element of it, you know, because of the tighter labor market. And, Absolutely. and I, I don't think you have to, you know, I, I think it's relatively obvious that, you know, if, if people were less worried about losing their jobs because uh, they didn't have to worry that that meant that like their kids wouldn't have health care anymore, that would also lead to a lot more militancy in the same way. I, I sense that we are probably going to wrap up soon. So I want to say another thing about this graph mm -hmm. before we move on. Um, yeah, let's, right, let's get class, the graph one more time. Let's get the graph one more time. So y'all are sick of seeing this graph, but um, okay. So, um, okay. So it is, this is a tool for organizing our thoughts. It's not the end of the analysis. In fact, Eric mm -hmm. Nolan Wright updated this in various ways over the course of his life. He was over the course of his life, he made many of these like very, very helpful visual like maps, class maps, as he called them. And they're they're tools for helping us think about how class functions, but they don't actually like literally describe everything. And one thing that you can't see on this uh, on this graph, which is very important, is that people often fit into one of these pretty neatly, but a lot of times don't like individual people sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. um, for example, it's like just the easiest example is that it's not always clear, like whether you're a skilled worker or an expert, like mm -hmm. it's that's like really if, iffy, you know, we can quibble over that and there's no right answer, right? Um, it's just a tool for helping us understand why some people get like bean bags and other people like get, you know, like um, if they're lucky, like donuts in the break room, right? Um, yeah, individuals can have all sorts of, con I mean, right, you're getting right. gray areas all over the place in this graph, but also even besides the, the gray areas from like, okay, how do we describe this one job, right? individuals have different jobs, you know, that they, that, I mean, especially, especially in the age of neoliberalism when everybody's supposed to be, you know, um, sticking together like 20 gigs to, uh, to, to, to make a living. You know, there are lots of people who do certain things that, you know, include them to the pen bourgeoisie, but also, you know, do certain things that make them employees, you know, so it, it, it's certainly yeah. not going to be the case that every individual can be slotted easily into this. Yes, and not only that, but um, an individual can also have a as this is something that he says later in the chapter that this comes from, which is very interesting to me. Um, an individual can also have a direct class location and a mediated class location, mediated by kinship structures. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, you know, I. Um, yeah, I've met people who are teachers, but they're like, I met, there's like one of this, this woman who, yeah, my partner was like, she was like, oh, like somebody who works in OEA with a, uh, I'm sorry, an OUSD in the Oakland Unified School District where my partner used to work, like has a room for rent. Let's go like check it out in her house. And we get to her house and we're like, what the fuck is this mansion? And we're like, she's a teacher? And her husband is like an expert manager at like a large company in the Bay Area, right? So like what class does she belong to? Um, she has a direct class location as a skilled worker, that would be a teacher. And as 
you know, somebody who lives a lifestyle subsidized by someone else who is uh, in a different box, an expert manager. Um, and one yeah. thing that he really wants mm -hmm. to like, and you know, your kinship structures, like your, your family, like your parents and your partner, and like, there are all kinds of different ways um, that you can arrange this. And actually mm -hmm. most people, I mean, possibly the majority of society, if you're counting like children and elderly mm -hmm. people, um, don't actually, and disabled people and retired people, like people don't, a lot of people don't work at all. So their kinship, unless they're relying on welfare, they are actually only relying on their mediated class location. And that puts them in a particular class. Um, yeah, so but mean, one, I, one, go ahead, mm -hmm. Ben. Oh, I was gonna say, uh, right. I mean, of course, you know, for people below a certain age, the most common form of this is that they, uh, they, it's mediated through their parents. I mean, they, right. I, I Absolutely. Was, uh, you know, I always think of it, you know, talk, you know, when I was still in Miami, you know, being over at the, uh, at a house of, of a, uh, graduate student and, uh, and, and looking around and saying things and, oh my God, this place is amazing. How much are you paying for this rent every month? Which talking to a normal graduate student would be a totally normal question to ask. And he got like sheepish and embarrassed about it, you know, which which I later realized was because, you know, his uh, you know his parents were rich and you know and, and and he wasn't actually you know paying rent, uh, you know. So so this this happens this happens all over the place. And it is a really useful distinction to make because if you're um, you know whatever I mean like if you're uh, Jill Biden and you're you know Jill Biden and you're working as a teacher. You know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, that's tells you very little about what your politics are going to be if there's a teacher strike. One thing I think that Eric Olin Wright gets at that's really, like, interesting, though, is that you're not, it's not like you're revealing, it's not like one of these, if you have two class locations, he says you can occupy two at once, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and your life just looks like a combination of what would happen if you just like mm -hmm. took a person and put them into it once, you know? And, and then he basically is saying like, you're not, one of them is not overshadowing the other. So like, it's not like, aha, like I got you, like I figured you out. You actually are in this other one, even though you're pretending to be in this one. So like, uh -huh. for example, like I, my parents are in the top one, the many owner, like there's uh -huh. actual capitalist. I'm a skilled worker. I don't, I'm not any less of a skilled worker because I have a mediated mm -hmm. class relationship or I have a, I have a different, I have like occupying two class locations at, at once. And the reason we know this is because we're not talking about your identity. We're not talking mm -hmm. about like who you are in your soul. We're talking about your relationship to work and we're talking about your capacities on the job. So like, let's say a person comes from a family of expert managers they're like the CEO, the son of a CEO or something. And they go and they get a job as a skilled worker. It is both true that unlike their coworkers, they, um, if they go on strike, they're not, they're less worried about like actually bankrupting themselves if they stay out on, stri on strike for too long, for example. Um, but it's also true that if they go out on strike, they are with, able to withdraw their labor. And that hurts the capitalists just as much as when the person next to them goes out on strike, mm -hmm. because they're the person who has that job. They're the person who's supposed to do that job. They're the person who the capitalist is relying on to do it so that the capitalist can exploit them and appropriate the surplus value of their labor. And so that's the point that he's trying to make is that you, you can occupy two at once and they don't sort of it's not like one of them is the real one and the other one is just the fake one or the facade. It's just that you can have multiple class locations and that combination may be totally unique to you and your life might look different from your coworkers who have different class, different multiple class locations, right? Yeah, so, um, so, so if you're, 
yeah so if you're the in the schrodinger's cat uh you know class uh class location uh it could be you know just that i mean not even so much that you you have the experience of you know experience the wrong word but you know it's not that you have the relationship to economic structure in exactly the same way as somebody else in it but you know in one of the boxes that you're occupying but you also have exactly the same relationship as everybody else in the other box that you're occupying it could be that in certain respects you have a relationship to it that's identified by one box like mm -hmm. you don't rely you know maybe you don't rely on it you know for uh you know to to make a living but in other respects uh you you have uh you have a different relationship to it like you're able to withdraw your labor and you know and, and hurt your employer yeah exactly there are just different capacities in which you more or less resemble the other people who are in the box with you intersectional class locations said somebody yeah pretty much i mean yeah pretty much this is like probably the best use of the term intersectionality in terms of because in the in the theory of intersectionality they're often always they're often telling you like well it doesn't actually look like this it like you see what we're looking at this graph the, the people who yeah. are like proponents of intersectionality actually tell us well it doesn't actually function like that um we're saying it does actually kind of function like this um I, you see there are there are actual intersections uh, here. So um, and the final thing I wanted to say about yeah. on this topic is that temporality plays a part in this. Um, this is really important to the question of like millennials and whether millennials are like the most disadvantaged generation um, in recent memory. Um, I mean, barring Gen Z, which like good luck. But, you know, the 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 answer is like both yes and no in the sense that um, Millennials have often, many millennials have had the experience of idling in one of these like lower right categories where they, whereas they felt like they were not, you know, were supposed to be in another one of them, right? Because of who their parents are or whatever. And that experience has actually um, informed people's uh, politics and ideology and has actually really like turned a lot of millennials onto socialism, for example. Um, but it's also true that if you say to yourself, oh, boomers, they have all the wealth and the millennials have none of the wealth. It's like, are you forgetting the fact that <laughs> the boomers are the parents of the millennials? Like in the future, <laughs> there will be a massive wealth transfer. I think it's already started, but it's gonna be a massive deluge that we can either tax the shit out of it or we can not. I mean, like we have to be thinking about that right now, what we're planning to do about that because it's definitely coming. So this is a this is a temporal dimension to the mediated class location question. Um, and the best, the other best example of this, besides you know the certain subset of millennials who are going to be inheriting the wealth that is currently being hoarded by boomers, which is a mirage, right? This idea that it's like mm -hmm. totally generational. It's like, well, generations turn over and the way that wealth is distributed is through like direct kinship ties. Um, so the yeah, other- if, if, the if, other all the, if, all the, if all the boomers were rich, then the millennials will be okay because eventually they'd inherit it. Yeah, and it's true that base, it's really true that actually there's incredible wealth stratification in among boomers, which is going to just transfer into wealth stratification among millennials, possibly even more concentrated. Though interestingly, also it has had the it has had the effect on making on radicalizing millennials and like changing their politics. So in like 20 years, we're going to see a lot of like millennials get a chunk of change but be pretty far to the left. So um 
lots more magazines are going to pop up. That's that's my guess. Um, so, um, but the, the the temporal the temporal dimension is also interesting um, for other reasons. One of which is gender. Um, uh, the the term Eric Olin Wright brought this up. This was le it's less so now, but it's still true to some extent that. Um, especially before when women just had fewer rights and opportunities, mm -hmm. um, women would have the class that they occupied while married to their husband. And they would also have what one socialist feminist, Marxist, uh, Marxist feminist scholar called their shadow class, which is the class they would belong to if their husband left them for a younger woman, if they, if their husband died. And so they're living in a sense with like two, classes the one they occupy now and the one that they have to occupy if something goes bad and it changes their relation changes gender relations for example it if you're worried about your husband your middle class husband you know leaving you know maybe 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 he's a, a skilled supervisor or something um and you're worried about him leaving for his uh secretary um it's going to change the way that you relate to your husband not as an equal but as a subservient member of the household mm -hmm. who is you know this is and this is the dynamic that characterized a lot of gender relations in the home in the 1950s when people were living the sort of suppose that many people were living the sort of post-world war ii american dream um and that's a temporal thing it's like at some hypothetical future date or maybe even tomorrow i could plummet from one class to another so it's the exact inversion of the millennial who's set to inherit a lot of money it's the woman who has no job prospects mm -hmm. if her husband leaves her for a prettier woman and so she spends her evenings you know slaving away in the kitchen for him mm -hmm. and makes sure that she dolls herself up really nice for when he comes home from work and all of this so um so that's just these are just endless endless little complicating mm -hmm. factors that we could go on forever and the book continues and continues and it's very well, fascinating we, we could we, we could go on forever but, but we won't we sit, <laughs> but we won't and since we uh since we don't have time to uh everybody should read class counts uh so uh thank you thank you so much megan all right thanks so much for having me ben i'm glad i got to talk about this because uh it's been on my mind uh passively for like a year now and this conversation has um actually inspired me to go at some point and actually write the like primer that i've been pl nice. planning to write yeah. you, I, you definitely should do that awesome all right thanks for having me on all right thank you so much for coming on all right so uh that was uh megan day uh now an editor at uh, jacobin moving up the squares uh, so uh, we are going to have a brief intermission uh, for uh, for like 45 seconds a minute, and then we are going to do the philosophy segment and then go to the post game. Dancing. <laughs>
Well, I did tell you I was, I was gonna, I was gonna end the. Uh, yeah, but then you didn't, so I started dancing again, and then there we were. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was really really good, uh, really in depth conversation uh, with Megan Day. Uh, we are going to turn now, though, to somebody. Uh, our attention to somebody who I think does not have as sharp a class analysis as Wait, Be- what? As Megan Day. What? Uh, and that is uh, our friend, Charlie Kirk. Oh, that's okay then. Yes. As you see. Oh, you were talking about me there for a second. As you. Uh, I was going to be like, well, why don't you go marry her then? <laughs> she wouldn't have me. Uh, so uh, we are now doing another teaching Charlie Kirk segment. Uh, we are actually, He needs a lot of teaching. He does. Uh, so we are one week uh, out uh, from actually being able to play this debate that I had with Charlie Kirk in Arizona on the show. Uh, we are going to do that if you're watching this live next week. I think if you're watching it as the clip, like tomorrow, uh, but uh, regardless, on October 25th. Uh, but uh, leading up to that, uh, we, you know, thought we'd share a few of the philosophy nuggets uh, from uh, from this conversation, uh, and one of those uh, had to do with roles in the veil of ignorance. So. Yeah, there we go. That's the uh, that's that's it. <laughs> you know, veil of ignorance, ritual pants. You know, see, there are all kinds of uh, good and helpful graphics going on uh, in this episode. So, uh, is that from Jay Andrew? <laughs> uh, he he assembled it into the into the GTA graphic, but this oh. was a pre-existing thing uh, that uh, I was going to say that doesn't really look like his style. No, it's definitely not his style. This is a uh, this is a pre-existing graphic of uh, of the veil of ignorance that we um, that Andy hooked up with the uh, the GTA logo in the background, so we could show it here. I see. There's someone with a dog there. I believe that's supposed to be a blind person. Oh, why can't it just be somebody with a dog? <laughs> oh, all right. Could be. Could be. I mean, he is holding a stick, also. Okay, maybe he just thinks it's snazzy. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. hello. I know. By the way, Silver Harlow, you had a question we never sort of addressed, didn't quite get to, but uh, it was getting to be definitely time to do this segment. So uh, we will will hope to address some of what you're asking about uh, in uh, in future. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Could, could be a could be a person with a pimp can and a dog. Exactly. Uh, um, and and by the way, I was dancing. Ben was not dancing, which is probably the ideal way for that to happen. <laughs> so, in um, the teaching Charlie Kirk segment that we did, <laughs> we're last... picking up poop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, is yeah, that that's a, the pooper scooper. Is that scooper. a pooper scooper? For yeah, walking he's walking his dog. Yeah, yeah, that could be. That could he's be. a responsible dog owner. Fair enough. So uh, <laughs> last week, uh, last week we were talking about social contract theory. Just as a refresher, we have a a little um, graphic of uh, of the philosopher uh, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, 
Yeah, here we go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, so this is Hobbes from, from Calvin and Hobbes, uh, but uh, saying the quote from, uh, from the philosopher Hobbes, uh, where he says that life in a state of nature is solitary, nasty. Poor, you forgot poor. Oh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That is a mouthful. Uh, None of that sounds good. No, it all sounds really bad, uh, which is why Hobbes thought that it was in our self-interest uh, to enter into a social contract. Um, and when you get into the 20th century, uh, there is a, another philosopher, uh, not one who, who has a, a character in a newspaper comic named after him, uh, John Rawls. I, That's a shame. I think there are zero cartoon tigers named Rawls. Uh, but uh, John Rawls took that sort of metaphor of justice as a society-wide contract in a slightly different direction and said that what is really relevant to thinking about political justice isn't what actually is in your interests as things happen, which could depend on all kinds of things, right? If you're born into great wealth, it's not in your interest. As I was. Yes. <laughs> well, as the as the heiress to that trucking <laughs> empire uh, right. in South her her dad is a trucker. He's retired now. But uh, the um, but if you're born into great wealth like Jen, uh, you know it was obviously in her interest to not have any taxes on inheritance. You know because because she didn't want to want to lose all that. Uh, whereas if uh, if you are born into poverty, your interests are entirely different. And so Rawls thought that what matters for justice is not. Uh, what actually is in your interests as it happens, but calculations that you would make about your interests in a certain hypothetical situation, which would be... Behind the veil of ignorance. So uh, tell us about the veil of ignorance or the, uh, the, the original position, which is the position that you're in when you're behind the veil of ignorance. Uh, when you are behind the veil of ignorance, you know basically nothing about yourself. You don't know your gender, your race, your financial situation, how smart you are, your physical abilities, um, whether you own a dog or not, <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty much anything that's, that's relevant you you don't need you don't or you you don't know any of these things about yourself right so the i think a, a pretty intuitive way of seeing why this uh makes a difference to what you'd want what you would see as your interests in that situation right you're you're in the original position you're trying to design a society and you know you're going to have to live in it mm -hmm. but you don't know who you're going to be that's right you may be the able-bodied white man who owns a dog, uh, but you may not. And the snazzy pipkin. <laughs> or possibly a pooper scooper. That's right. Or you may be the black woman in a wheelchair who has no dog. So uh, you, you don't know what you're going to be. So what do you want the society to be like once you go into it in, this, uh, in, in your position that you don't know what it will be ahead of time? Yeah. And so the reason that this came up uh, in the debate with Charlie Kirk, not the main part, uh, which uh, 
I think what he's showing actually in a, in a few days as an episode of Debate Night with Charlie Kirk is like the basically the first hour that there was a kind of post game part. I think he's going to play the podcast when they give us the video. It'll be the whole the whole thing. We'll show the whole thing. But in the uh, in the post game part, uh, we were talking about the wacky statements that he likes to make that we were talking about last week. Uh, there is no social contract. Your rights come from God. I didn't sign one. <laughs> yes, he, he didn't sign the social contract. Uh, and so uh, we were uh, we we're getting into all that a little bit. Uh, and, and I started talking about Rawls and how I think that that uh, that Rawls, um, you know, that Rawls is a little thought experiment here. And, you know, there are complications that we could bring up about um sort of sophisticated criticisms of what Rawls is saying that somebody like G.A. Cohen might make and different responses to that. But trust me, none of that's going to be relevant to what happened in the Charlie Kirk debate. Uh, so I was breaking up. <laughs> I was, are, are you just not going to show our faces or or what are, What are you doing here? Well, you know, showing the people the... Uh, the I think they've got it by now. The original, okay, everybody's mastered yeah. the... Everybody's uh, got it. Everybody's got the original position. Uh, this is not like the, uh, the the graph of the class, you know, positions that uh, that, that we really had to study for a long time. Everybody's got the notion. Uh, so, uh, in this debate, right, you know, I was pointing out that just like if you were in the original position, you're behind the veil of ignorance. Uh, you wouldn't want like Jim Crow laws in the, no. in the society you were designing because you'd be taking a risk that you'd be born black rather than white, and thus would be really harmed by such laws. Yes. And similarly, you know, this is, you know, the part with Megan was called uh, how to be an anti-capitalist in the 20th century. It was all about how those different class positions inform, you know, limits of how DSA is right now and how the Democratic Party is and all that stuff. Uh, but the point I was making, right, was about uh, why to be an anti-capitalist uh, that if you know, for the same reason that if you didn't know whether you're going to be black or white, you wouldn't endorse Jim Crow laws. If you didn't know whether you're going to be born into a rich family or a poor family, and if you were born into a poor family, you didn't know if you would uh, be born with the particular package of cognitive skills uh, that are, like all skills, unequally distributed, right? Um, watch me try to play basketball and you will quickly oh, see. Oh boy. Uh, you will quickly see just how unequally distributed. You don't need to demonstrate uh, please don't. your shot. <laughs> please don't. <laughs> so I uh, can't do that on air. Uh, so, uh, you know, all skills are like that. And the particular skills that happen to be rewarded by, you know, like a contemporary, you know, industrialized, um, highly developed, you know, capitalist society, uh, to climb up that sort of professional managerial class career ladder uh, that, you know, how good you're going to be at taking tests, for example. So Here, you're, you're uh, sitting in front of me. Your mom's not going to like that. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she, that wasn't as random as it sounded. <laughs> there's, there's a context to that, but I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to keep telling you about roles. Uh, so you know, the same way that if you happen to be born into a society where the only way out of poverty was to join some sort of warrior caste by, you know, trial by combat or something like that. Uh, and so if you were born big and strong, uh, then then you would benefit from like that. Like me. Yes. Uh, whereas if, um, you know, you live in America in the 21st century, uh, then if you aren't born into money, then, you know, 
your your best shot uh, at at changing, you know, going up those squares in the class diagram might be uh, having, you know, like going to school and uh, and and doing really well in school and you know getting some sort of middle class professional job. But of course, not everybody's going to be equally able to do that because all skills, including the set of skills that are rewarded in that process that I just mentioned, are distributed unequally. Luck is also distributed unequally. Just, you know, just sheer, you know, not like four leaf clover, you know, supernatural luck, but, you know, just just sheer happenstance, right? You know, all of the things that go into whether somebody is going to be at the right place at the right time, they have certain opportunities. So if you didn't know whether you're going to be born into a rich family or a poor one, you didn't know whether you're going to be born with a certain set of skills that might help you climb educational career ladders, you didn't know uh whether you were going to happen to be lucky enough to encounter certain opportunities you didn't know if you were going to be attractive right you didn't know if you were going to be thin those things matter in our society sure i mean as as the actually there was a i don't remember who said this uh there is no charge for awesomeness or attractiveness i remember who said that uh it was a kung fu panda <laughs> but uh the uh i think uh tom from yakubi earlier i can't find the chat anymore uh, said, you know, we were looking at the square of all the different economic positions that clearly the the way to do it is to uh, marry up the squares. Uh, so all those things that you just Like you did. Yes, like I did <laughs> during this trucking era. Uh, uh, that all of those things that you just mentioned about the um, uh, thinness, attractiveness, and all that stuff are going to be relevant there, right? So in other words, if you didn't know whether you were either going to be born into that top left square, you know, employer, many employees, uh, or whether you were going to have various advantages that might help you claw your way, if not quite up there, at least, you know, further up, you know, the, uh, the squares, then you would not want a society that's wildly economically unequal. You know, you wouldn't want a society where um, some people are born into great wealth and it doesn't really matter that much if they work and some people are going to lose their health insurance if they lose their job and, uh you know, not being able to have preventative medicine and and you wouldn't uh, want a society where you were going to end up really badly off if you look like you got hit with the ugly stick. For example, that really shouldn't matter. Sure, uh, you know, and and so again, the point I was making to to Kirk was just you know the sort of veil of ignorance thing does show us something about why it's unjust to have a wildly economically unequal society because. If he didn't he, seem to get it, though. He did not, right? Uh, like so much else, he didn't seem to get it. No comment. Uh, but uh, maybe I should cover up my shirt if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be mean. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so the point is that Rawls's point is that what matters for thinking about justice is whether essentially you're taking everybody's interests into account in a certain way. And the way to see whether you're taking everybody's interests into account in the right way is basically to think, okay, would somebody agree to these social institutions if they didn't know whether factors outside of their control, like everything that we just went over, would dictate where they ended up? And, you know, and, and he thinks, you know, Rawls thinks no. Uh, I think no. I think no. <laughs> uh, Charlie Kirk. Seems to not understand. Yeah, he, he said, uh, well, 
even if I was in, you know, the original position, you know, even if I was trying to veil of ignorance, I would still want a society that rewarded, you know, natural rights to property and this and that. And it just seemed like, okay, he's just like listed off a bunch of moral and political commitments, but none of that really has anything to do with the question. Like if you, sure, I mean, you, you could have some sort of criticism of this way of thinking about justice, then you'd, you'd say it and we could discuss it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, or you could justify why it's okay to have crazy inequality, not like a little bit of inequality. So people have incentives to do certain things that might benefit others, but crazy inequality. Average CEO, you know, makes, you know, 400 times the salary of the average worker kind of inequality. Um, nobody's working 400 times harder than anybody else, you know, nobody's contributing. I feel like I work 400 times harder than some people, but and, not you. I didn't, I didn't mean that as toward Ben, but and yet, yeah. And yet you aren't, you are not, you are not getting that CEO money from uh, Georgia State. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you can judge for yourself, uh, when you watch the debate on, uh, October 25th, when we, that you can. when we air it here. But it seemed to me that the, who knows I might even pop in for that. Jen you might, never know. Jen might even pop in for uh, for for the episode where we air the debate. You know, give some more thoughts. So uh, you can judge for yourself. But it did seem to us that on the rolls thing, like the social contract stuff, like the uh, youth of row, <laughs> youth of row. Uh, Why not both? It it did seem to us that uh, that, that that Charlie. Uh, was not quite um, on top of it. Was not quite on top of it. So, you know, make your own judgments. Uh, but uh, that is the philosophy part of, uh, of that debate. You can watch the philosophy part, the politics part, the, all the parts uh, on uh, Monday, the 25th. Meanwhile, uh, you know, we, the we of the show, are uh, going to, <laughs> uh, to the post game. And Jay Andrew, yes, I feel like we should all dress up for that. Yes. So um, we're going to go to the post game uh, where uh, Jake and Andy and I are going to watch a clip uh, from that 1996 uh, from earlier from the thing that we watched of Christopher Hitchens talking about the American healthcare system. We're going to talk about Colin Powell. Uh, we are uh, we are going to uh, to talk about you know how generally you should think about terrible people who uh, who have recently passed on uh, and sort of debates that people have about that you know whether whether you should airbrush you know their memory uh, so uh, lots of interesting stuff uh, coming up uh, then I, that sounds fun but I have grading to do sure to make that CEO money yeah yeah uh, well they'll, they'll start paying you that any day now any day all right <laughs> team Snoopy forever. Left his best.